All right, so we are continuing with eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. The uh, eight elements are listed in Roman numeral one on your outline, and we are on element seven, the first five steps into the kingdom of Christ. And of course, that's based on in Exodus 25, eight and nine, Moses is told to see to it that he makes everything in the tabernacle according to the pattern. And it's part of our contention that uh, in today's uh, Christian culture, uh, biblical thinking is applied to a uh, sort of a reduced gospel. In other words, to some points of the gospel, but with the neglect of others. Uh, and uh, biblical thinking is not applied to all of life like it should be, and especially broader categories like eschatology and especially ecclesiology. What is the church supposed to be? So most models of the church today are kind of traditional and come out of American marketing ideas, such as the mega church models and so forth. Instead of uh, kind of examining the scriptures and saying, let's build everything according to the pattern. So we're, you know, doing this very long series. This is actually the 131st lesson. We started in May of 2015. Uh, you'll notice uh, there's a uh, typo, misprint. Uh, Deanna, you might want to fix that this week because it says we commenced in uh, 517 of 2005, but uh, that was actually 2015. Um, and, uh, um, the, you know, part of the reason we're looking into the gospel this thoroughly is the tendency in American Christianity since the Civil War has been to reduce the gospel both in the content but in uh, trying to present it quicker. So we you know, have gospel tracks so that we can share the gospel with someone in five minutes and pray with them to receive Christ. <laughs> and uh, uh, we kind of put a lot of stock in uh, chalking up another notch on our belt. Uh, you know, I, I prayed with someone else to receive Christ. But the Bible never tells us to go out and make decisions of all men it tells us to go out and make disciples of all men. And if someone does not become a disciple of Jesus Christ in a biblical sense, uh, there's, there's a great deal of question as to what we've accomplished. And so if, if you can't look at someone's life and say, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, uh, and, the, and the person's not conforming their life uh, from er, you know, everything from how they treat the Lord's Day to how they treat their kids to how they work at their job, to how they uh, relate to one another in the body of Christ, and so forth, and on and on. Uh, what's your expectations of the future? What, what, what are you building for? You know, what, in other words, what's your view of history, and what are you building toward? If all these things haven't been reexamined biblically, uh, you know, there's some question as to what you've really help someone with if you've just prayed a sinner's prayer with them. So the other thing, though, that we want to look at is the gospel is for us to live by every day. And so you have to reposition yourself in Christ. You know, you, the Bible says some amazing things that, for instance, in Ephesians 1.6, it says that you were accepted in the beloved, and the uh, Greek there is the, is, only appears one other place, in the New Testament, and that's in Luke, when the angel says to Mary that you're the much favorite of the Lord. So when, you're, when it's saying that you're accepted in Christ, you're actually one of the most favored people that's ever walked this planet. 
And, you know, uh, Hebrews 2 tells us that we must be careful lest we drift by neglecting such a great salvation. And you won't know that you shouldn't neglect or drift from it if you don't spend time thinking about how great that we're called to. We're not just called to put, you know, like we've tended to reduce the gospel to going to heaven, but eternal life is a quality of life that's a spiritual reality from knowing God deeply today. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, uh, Jesus says in John 17. And so, uh, you know, thinking about the gospel thoroughly is very important. You know, when you take, uh, for instance, uh, step six, receiving Jesus Christ. We spent 24 weeks just on that. Um, and, uh, you know, we looked, at, uh, it, we looked at over 20 different biblical words that have to do with uh, what it means to receive Jesus. You know, do you know a good biblical definition of words like contrition, faith, repentance, confession, conviction? and so forth. So when we looked at Jesus Christ, the only mediator, number five, we spent 30 weeks just on Christology. Deanna and I are currently working on a book on the subject, and we're calling it Consider Jesus, based on 11, Hebrews, 11, or Hebrews chapter 3, I'm sorry, that says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our faith. And then Consider Jesus' subtitle is Studies and Meditations on Christ, and we're going to do 180 chapters on just who the Bible says Jesus is. And, um, and that's the short abridged version. <laughs> you, could do, you could do 300 chapters easily on all the different names of Christ, all the different types of Christ, all the different ways that the Bible reveals Christ. And uh, that would be a great book. You know, we're kind of designing it for a daily, daily devotion so that you can keep Christ in the front and center of your experience. So, um, that's why we're going into this this much. Uh, at the same time, we're running a series called Baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you go through the pattern of the book of Acts, the five steps people went through in their, at the beginning of the Christian life, most of which American Christians have taken two of those five steps usually. Uh, sometimes one, sometimes none. But uh, it's probably kind of, a normal experience that people have taken two and don't know the other three even exist. And uh, so the third one of those is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've been doing a series on what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, coterminously with this Eight Essential Elements uh, series. And today is the 38th and final lesson on the uh, new version of the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. However, we're only taking us through getting baptized in the Spirit uh, if we were writing this into a book, I would add a whole other section on how to begin to progress in a relationship with the Holy Spirit so you could increase in both fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit functioning in your life. If you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and it's not your uh, normative experience to be filled and refilled and refilled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that the voice of the Holy Spirit becomes more certain for you so that uh, it becomes more concrete, tangible, real to you, so that you know when you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You know when the Holy Spirit is pleased. 
Um, you know when you're filled, uh, again, with the Holy Spirit. And you know when you're flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit or when you're relying on your own strength and in thought systems. And if that hasn't begun to happen in your life, then you're still kind of at the starting door of the Christian life. And you, uh, you need to, to, to get an older brother or sister to walk you through to that kind of reality. Paul said in Romans 1, the God whom I serve in my spirit. And you should actually know what's going on in your spirit versus what's going on in, say, your mind and your emotions. They're not the same. And you have to be able to perceive in the Holy Spirit uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit the, uh, and how the Holy Spirit thinks about things. Of course, uh, many spiritual disciplines such as worship and uh, praying in your, in your prayer language, praying in tongues are, are, are disciplines that can help you uh, grow in your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Uh, reading scripture should not be a merely academic exercise, but it should be an exchange whereby you're growing and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit spoke the scriptures. So if you want to know what the, God is saying, read a book of the Bible. And, uh, and read... You know, learn to read the Bible holistically, whole books, put the books in their context, understand who the author was, who they're writing to, uh, what the major themes of the book are, and so forth. All right, so with that, we've been looking at uh, uh, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We did a section A, a section B, section C. Section C is kind of imparting or receiving the Holy Spirit. And we were, on, we were down at the bottom of the page, you'll see... Uh, that when you're preparing someone to be prayed for, taking them through Bible studies and building their faith to be prayed for, uh, there's five common hindrances that people have to encountering the Holy Spirit initially and to staying filled with the Holy Spirit. So every person in this room wrestles with these five things. And uh, every person has made more or less progress with them. And so we, uh, not, we taught for two weeks on what the five were, but then the last two or three weeks, we've been going through the five and giving examples uh, from times we prayed with people to uh, overcome them. And we were down to the fifth one, overcoming a spirit of unbelief. Okay? And so um, that one's a big deal in our culture because if you were, you know, someone uh, and I were chatting this morning and they said, I still struggle with a spirit of unbelief. And I said, I said yeah, because you're from Western culture. Uh, of course you do. <laughs> you know, everyone in Western culture has been brainwashed to believe that only what you can see, touch, and feel is reality. And uh, only your reason is, is truth. And we have not uh, learned how to hear the voice of Jesus and realize that when Jesus says, come, out on the waters, even if there's 30-foot waves and you never walked on water before, then at that point, once Jesus says, come, walking on water is normative. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, holding on to the boat is not normal. So, um, the truth of the matter is, is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Truth. And in fact, Jesus speaks more about the Holy Spirit in John chapters 13 through 16 
which is John's version of the Last Supper, and Jesus is telling them, I'm going to the Father, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he's making it clear that he's going to continue to do the same ministries that he's always done. That's a position in theology, a debatable position called continuationism. There are some people that believe Jesus only did certain things uh, for a generation or so after his resurrection. And after that, we just have logic and reason to, to uh, express to people. Um, but Jesus continues to minister the same way he's always ministered. But he does it by the person of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ. And so Jesus tells us more about the operation and person and ministries of the Holy Spirit in John's chapter 14, 15, and 16 than anywhere else in the whole Bible. And he constantly calls him the advocate, the paracletos, the helper called along to aid us. And he calls him the spirit of truth. And you're starting to make progress in the Christian life when your natural mind is not, that you begin to doubt your natural mind, you lean not on your own understanding, and you're able to hear the voice of the Spirit speaking Scripture. And He will never speak something contrary to Scripture, but He will often speak things contrary to your previous understanding of Scripture. So we've dealt with that a lot in this series, right? Now that's very important. We, of course, uh, Acts chapter 10 is one of the best examples of that. Jesus in Luke chapter 4, uh, so both, both Matthew and Luke take Jesus out of the wilderness and he begins his public ministry in chapter 4 of Matthew and chapter 4 of Luke. And in, in Matthew, uh, Matthew focuses on what, the, what Jesus said to the Jews. Luke focuses on what Jesus said to the Jews and the Gentiles and about the Gentile, the kingdom of God being for the Gentiles. But when Jesus declares in Luke 4 to the point where they're so angry they want to stone him to death because the Israelites had fallen into a place instead of being God's mediators of his grace and, and law and truth and realities to the outside culture, they hated the outside culture. Can't help, you can't disciple someone you don't love, right? So the Jews had denied the calling of God on their life by hating the Gentiles. And so when Jesus begins to proclaim the kingdom will be for the Gentiles, he's not saying something that the Old Testament didn't say in over a thousand places. But they had no room in their understanding of Scripture for, for that, even though it's spelled out plainly. And that was so deeply ingrained in them that, that eight years after Pentecost, when Peter is at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, he still doesn't realize the kingdom of God is for the Gentiles. Until the Holy Spirit gives him a vision and then moves through him in such a way that it corrects his theology. But it's not, it's not correct saying something new that the Bible wasn't saying all along. That's what very important for you to understand. The Holy Spirit will often open your eyes to things you are blinded to in Scripture, and you should have lots of moments with the Holy Spirit that you go, oh, you know, I've read this 50 times, and I just never got it. I'll never forget one of my most treasured experiences in life came in my car uh, because I would go... Uh, 
to lunch and uh, I was in commission sales and I was doing quite well. So I uh, sometimes would go to lunch for three, four, five, sometimes even six hours and read my Bible, <laughs> leave for lunch at 1130, get back at five. <laughs> and of course, I would work till 10 or whatever anyway. So, But, uh, I, you know, I would go to this one park and uh, go for a walk and then I'd sit in my car and read my Bible. And I, ne- I never forget in 1998 going through Matthew for probably the 100th time in my Christian life, and all of a sudden understanding Matthew on levels I never had understood it. I began to understand it was God's covenant lawsuit against Israel and against Jerusalem, and, and that it, the whole thing had a unified theme, and it wasn't just what evangelicals say, like a, an evangelical message to the Jews to see that they missed their Messiah, but it was a lawsuit against the Jews for not receiving their the Messiah, and a promise of, of judgment coming upon the Jews. And Matthews 24 and 25 had nothing to do with the end times. They had everything to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Which was, happened, as Jesus promised in Matthew 24, that that would happen within a generation. So, and I just, I, I just remember going through Matthew for months and just over and over again, and outlining and diagramming and writing in my margins. I thought I was a disciple of Beth Karyuki for a while. I was writing everywhere, and I hadn't met Beth yet. But, uh, <laughs> but you can be a disciple ahead of time. Um, just write, you know, and I, you know, I was like, like counting the number of times Jesus said this, and I would call it first attestation, and uh, 1A, 2A, 3A, and you know, like, oh, Jesus repeats this thing three times in Matthew and so forth. And it was just, you know, this wonderful, wonderful experience. It was one of the highlights of my whole life. Uh, just understanding Matthew for, for the first time. And it was probably the hundredth time I'd read Matthew. So, um, you know, the Holy Spirit will often do that. So, now... In terms of this spirit of unbelief, there's a thing that uh, I now call metacognitive constitution. Some of, some of you would realize that I uh, uh, used to call this um, solical fiber, and then I'd always say I've got to find a better word. But we are wired in such a way, some people hear emotionally, some people hear rationally, some people hear emotionally defensively, some people hear emotionally uh, kind of with a say guilt manipulation or sometimes with compassion and maybe sometimes even false compassions. But, but people hear a, things a certain way. And part of what it means to come to Christ is to have your spirit regenerated in such a way is that you begin to learn to hear, to know the scriptures thoroughly, to know the voice of God thoroughly, and to understand what is spirit, what is uh, Rational, intellectual, cognitive uh, information from Scripture, but when, when, what the Holy Spirit is breathing on and quickening and making alive to you, because the words he speaks are spirit and life, all of them. And, you know, Jesus uh, knew what was going on by the Holy Spirit and his spirit so much that he knew when the Pharisees were thinking evil in their heart. And if you have never experienced like God helping you totally understand somebody the moment you meet them, uh, that's a normal Christian experience that he wants to take you to. Where, uh, you know, where you have information uh, 
you know, that's, that can only be attained by the Spirit of God. About situations, about people, and so forth. So, um, sometimes people, and we often, this sometimes can even go along with certain kinds of vocations, like we think of scientists and engineers as being, uh, having a metacognitive constitution where they sort of hear rationally, but don't necessarily hear spiritually. And uh, I remember dealing with a guy who was in our campus ministry back in the 80s at Wright State, who actually was a rocket scientist. You know, you always hear it's not rocket science. Well, for him, it, that's actually what he was always about. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but he had many natural-minded interpretations of Scripture, not the least of which were about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, he came in our midst, and we were at a time when there was kind of a visitation of God where there were regularly and often dramatic deliverances and, and healings and things that happened that were observable. And uh, so he kind of had to rethink everything. And uh, he, in fact, went on to get baptized in the Spirit and changed his, his way of thinking. So I'm actually going to talk, uh, I'm going to finish last week's message and get into this week's message by talk, giving about three testimonies of people in our church who uh, kind of came out of a natural-minded spirit into a spirit of unbelief. And the first, were, first ones were John and Leah Gray. John and Leah Gray had been brought up in a cessationist Christianity. In other words, they had been taught to believe the Holy Spirit doesn't do these things anymore. And I remember even talking to Leah and said, well, what the Holy Spirit might do is sort of tug at someone's heart or something, but that's it. That's, you can't expect the Holy Spirit doing much more than that. And um, they had actually gone to a particular Bible study or Bible cemetery in upstate New York that had taught them that. And uh, <laughs> among other wrong paradigms of interpreting Scripture that were hindering them, and so, um, you know, we started in on the baptism and the spirit teachings, but uh, Catherine and I would have John and Leah over every Sunday after church, after the dinner, we'd have them over again for lunch. <laughs> well, what sense that makes, I don't know, but <laughs> the best fellowship always happens around food. That's, I used to be skinny before I became a Christian. But... Um, and so we would uh, have lunch, and we would do this one- or two-hour Bible study going through the four outlines on the Holy Spirit that we have. And it took us six months to go through those outlines. Because like when we talked about the incarnation of Christ, that took like two or three weeks because they had never thought about any of that. And mind you, they both had degrees in Bible from universities, or from, well, from a college in one case and a university in another. But... Um, it was just uh, that they had been kind of brainwashed in skepticism. And so the idea that God still does the kinds of things, I'd, it always surprises me that people who've read the Gospels several times have no expectations of the Christian life being supernatural. And I'm like, what, what do you do about this? I'm sure you all know the famous story of John Wimber when he first became a Christian that he would go up for the first six weeks or so, he'd go up to the pastor who was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and he, afterwards, he, after church every week, he'd say, that was really good. And the pastor would say, thank you very much, and so forth. And this continued 
So finally, after about six weeks, he said, that was really good, but when are we going to start to do this? And, he, and the pastor said, do what? And he said, the things you're teaching about in the Gospel of Mark, when are we going to proclaim the gospel to the poor, heal the sick, cast out demons, and so forth? And the pastor goes, oh, well, we don't do those things. We just talk about them. <laughs> you know? And uh, so uh, that kind of began uh, you know, a, a movement that kind of was like, the last wave of the charismatic movement in the 1980s that kind of affected, frankly, thousands of people in, in lots of nations. <coughs> so, um, you know, in John and Leah's case, we uh, used to, uh, before there was Friday Night Fellowship, I, I don't even know if we own this building. Yeah, we own this building already. And uh, when... And, uh, but we had, would have Friday night worship over at Jason and Carla's old house in their uh, that big family room they have. Because you can sit like 20, 24 people around in a circle easily. And John would usually lead the worship. And for whatever reason, we were in a time where like the Spirit of God would drop on the praise and worship like awesome. And one time John was worshiping and, and he was lifting his hands to the Lord. And you could see the presence of God in his face and all upon him and so forth. And he, uh, John tells me he doesn't remember this experience, but it like totally knocked me for a loop. Uh, John, uh, it, like at a certain point, he stopped worshiping and sat down and just uh, sat there for the last three or four songs. And uh, so I asked him after the meeting, like, what happened? And he said, you know, I, he said, I was really feeling the, 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 a joy from God start to flow through me, and I was feeling very joyous, and I've always been warned that you have to be careful not to become emotional, and against emotionalism. And so I figured I better stop. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, the, a fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. That joy will enter through your spirit but that joy will, will flood over into your solical being and into your affections, and gradually it'll cause you to love different things, the things of God. And that experiencing that power and that joy on a regular basis is a very important part of the Christian life. I would encourage you to experience that privately every day and several times a week with the, with the saints. You know, I... I uh, have begun to hear more and more reports of different households where people are worshiping, praying, having family devotions, that sort of thing. You need that uh, to encounter the presence of God both privately and corporately. That's step five of entering the kingdom of God. It's called entering a New Testament lifestyle. And in a New Testament lifestyle, you have daily encounters with the power of, of God. And they're both private in, in alone with God, and they're public uh, with, the, with the saints. And often, they should be the saints of your household. Uh, that's why it's so important to live with saints. It will help your Christian life so much. Um, then, of course, our, you know, John uh, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Leah actually said, you know, I'm going to stop studying all this. <laughs> and just drop it for a while. And, she's, and I said, okay. So she stopped studying for about two months. Well, little known to me, during that two months, she was reading every book we have on the Holy Spirit. And uh, she came back two months later says, I t studied it all out. I totally get it. Let's do this. I need to get baptized in the Spirit. And that was like a, a beginning of a change for the two of them. Uh, became completely different Christians since then. 
really. Uh, you know, in fact, John is actually going to uh, start starting next Sunday. John's going to teach at 9:30 for the month, the rest of January and February. And we're in the process of John Weiss, and especially is working with this, but. Uh, we're in the process as elders of raising John Gray up as an elder of our church. And if you could have told me that John Gray would be an elder of our church, I actually always had faith to believe that, but it really tested my faith. It was like, are you kidding? Like, first, Lord, he's going to have to want to read the Bible. <laughs> you know, like, no offense, but that's, you know, it's like, okay. I don't care that he has a bachelor's degree in Bible study. I want him to to actually like read the like whole books of the Bible and and uh, so forth. John and I used to go round and round because I couldn't get him to read any of our foundational articles or books, and uh, used to frustrate the heck out of me. But now, uh, now John is always reading good books. In fact, he just got done reading Tim Keller's book on preaching, so he's going to try it out starting next week. Um, all right, so, uh, you know, Chris and Amanda Wu were both like that. They uh, actually both had parents who were baptized in the Spirit, and that Chris's parents are missionaries to Taiwan, as you know, and, he, and that's a pretty important part of their Christian experience in life, but, but Chris had never experienced that because he was only about eight when they moved from Taiwan, and he had been both mostly in natural-minded evangelical kinds of churches that didn't uh, have anything to do with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And so they, uh, I mean, they, my wife and I took them through the, the studies, and it took months. And he was one of the few people that uh, we've ever prayed for who didn't get baptized in the Holy Spirit the, the, the night we prayed for. And, uh, and I had never had that happen before, never, in 43 years. And so that was a bit frustrating. And then I began to realize uh, that was actually a turning point for us that, that's helped a number of people since then, uh, Robbie Johnson, Josiah, so forth. But I began to realize that when, when people have grown up in a very dry, natural-minded kind of Christianity, they often will need to start experiencing the presence of God in praise and worship and, and, and you'll have to take them on a journey before that, for that to become normative before they can step into the realm of the, of the Holy Spirit, really. Because stepping into the realm of the Holy Spirit is walking with God in such a way that He's driving, not you anymore. And that's, that's a big game changer in your Christian walk. And so... Uh, you know, I, I remember they were a little discouraged, and, you know, I kept encouraging them. We kept studying different things, and then uh, one day, you know, Amanda Wu called, and she had totally gotten blown away by the Holy Spirit, and she had a gift of speaking in tongues and was, like, totally drunk in the things of God, and uh, that went on for quite a few weeks. And, uh, and then, of course, we, uh, I continued to go on my walks with Chris Wu and continued to kind of pour faith into him, and then... Uh, then we prayed with Chris again, and he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that was a huge game changer for them. So uh, Robbie Johnson was the same way. He had grown up in a kind of Christianity where you don't have any expectations of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that started happening with him, him before he ever started studying who the Holy Spirit was uh, in our meetings. And uh, then uh, Daniel Williams started taking Robbie through the studies, and, uh, but I remember, uh, was this fall, past fall, 
uh, when the, John had first bought the campus ministry house and some of the guys had moved in and they were having some sort of housewarming kind of event or something. And Robbie and I decided to meet up and talk. And so we went for a walk around the campus. And, and I can remember it was still so dry that I just encouraged Robbie to keep studying these things and to keep asking God to make his power and his presence real to Robbie. And I didn't schedule an appointment to pray with him. And a couple months later, I began to say, you know, Robbie, let's visit this again. And, and then uh, it was just maybe three or four or five weeks ago that Robbie got powerfully baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we uh, had Daniel and Robbie and I had one last meeting before we prayed. And God, you could tell there was a flow into Robbie that he was now learning to hear spiritually. And that's just something, if you disciple people, that's something you want to go beyond knowing when you're being filled with the Spirit daily and when you're sensing God's power and presence and peace and joy and all these things, but you want to begin to be able to sense when that's flowing from you to the person you're ministering to because that's when you're actually be effective helping someone. And if there's no flow of God's power and life into them, then you want to ask God to, you want to wrestle with God and, and keep working at it till you break through to where they're hearing what the Holy Spirit's hearing in the Scripture. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says that he thanks God that when they heard his message, they heard it for what it really is, the Word of God and not of men, that also performs its work in, their, in those who believe. When God is giving them faith, you know it. And spiritual sensitivity, that's one thing you want to be very clear on, is not always anything necessarily to do with spiritual maturity. It's an ingredient in spiritual maturity. Many, many people are very spiritually sensitive. And I can, I can sense when I'm teaching that the, the Spirit is flowing uh, through me and, and into them and so forth, but maybe they don't have the character or whatever, but they don't, they don't keep that. There's other people, you know, Chris Wu was a guy who was, had every earmark of being a, one of the most mature Christians I'd ever had the privilege of discipling and walking with in so many ways, in so many areas, except he just had no sensitivity to the voice and power and flow of the Spirit. But I mean, he knew Scripture backward and forward. He'd, uh, he had lived a very godly life, one of the best husbands I'd ever seen. Like, you know, if you want to I could send people to go, go uh, watch Chris Wu if you want to learn how to be a better husband. <laughs> you know, like he's a great one. And uh, just so many marks of Christian maturity uh, in every area of his life. And so um, spiritual sensitivity is, can actually sometimes uh, be, people can have that without spiritual stability in, in other, and other people can have a certain amount of spiritual stability who that the, the, the real weakness in their walk with God is that spiritual sensitivity. So all the above cause is what spiritual maturity is about. A spiritually mature person hears the voice of the Holy Spirit, but is also thoroughly uh, filled with Scripture and the principles thereof and, and the knowledge of the gospel and so forth and and, and they're very stable in their fruit, in the, in the fruit of their character, and so forth, um, it, you know, et cetera. Uh, their life is, 
you know, so, so maturity is something that, that involves spiritual sensitivity, but that's not the only ingredient. And you can actually have spiritual in, in, uh, sensitivity, and you often encounter people who are very spiritually sensitive that when you're talking to them, the Spirit of God is really flowing in the conversation, but they don't have much uh, in overall stability in their life. And so that's just an ingredient uh, in spiritual maturity. I hope, I hope that's clear. All right, let's get into today's stuff in the last 10 to 12, 15 minutes. And uh, this is actually my last message on this. We're going to uh, finish this, and then uh, John Gray is going to teach next Sunday. So point six on the back of your page, uh, the necessity and value or values of speaking in tongues. So um, let's jump down halfway down the page to Acts 10, 44 through 48, and we'll read those words. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For, now whenever you see a for or a therefore, you always find out what the therefore is there for. <laughs> and it's a restatement of what it previously said. Right, So when, when uh, Jesus tells the disciples in Acts 1, 4 and 5 to wait in Jerusalem until uh, they receive the promise of the Spirit, he then redefines what he says, and he says, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's why I want you to wait in Jerusalem. That's why I don't want you to go start to minister until you get the promise of the Father. Okay? So in this case, it says, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Notice that phrase, just as we did. In Acts 2, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and all spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, right? And in this case, everyone was speaking in tongues, not a, no exceptions. Then Peter said, uh, ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked them, uh, Peter and his his team to stay on for a few days, right? Now, um, 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? So there's, uh, we want to always say in, in our church, we always acknowledge that there's uh, areas of Scripture that, are, that there's different opinions on, and we're not willing to divide over those opinions. So there are people who say that people get baptized in the Spirit and don't receive a prayer language. And I honestly think that people get baptized in the Holy Spirit and don't receive a prayer language, but they could have received a prayer language had someone un helped them understand what that's all about and come out. What, what we invariably have in Western minds is a very uh, Eastern view of what spiritual activity is. And what we think is that if something's authentic from God, we would be passive recipients when in fact, when Jesus says, come, you have to get out of the boat and start to walk. And so, you know, uh, when we're helping someone get baptized in the Spirit, I'll usually have a talk with them ahead of time about how to hear when the Holy Spirit starts to give them the words and how to begin to say them, because you have to actively participate. You know, the Spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. God will never do anything without your active participation. He'll never just, uh, you, you know, 
translate you beam me up Scotty from here to there even though he did that with Philip but uh, Philip was a willing participant and uh, Kyle's been praying for that to happen to him ever since <laughs> especially when he's late for class no I'm just kidding. Lord translate me to class no um, wouldn't that be amazing to be like you're preaching one place and then the Lord just puts you down somewhere else and says, go talk to this guy all right sounds good so, uh, but, you know, God still does those things today. He's, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. So if anyone ever disappears while you're talking to him, it's probably not the rapture. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, anyway. Uh, um, anyway, moving on. So this, these verses make something very clear. The apostles knew that these people were filled with the Holy Spirit by the fact that they were speaking in tongues and exalting God. That's how they knew. And God took the initiative in Acts chapter 10 because, as, as you noticed, Peter then said, we can go through the covenant ceremony of water baptism, even, and they've already gone through the covenant ceremony of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we can, we can receive them as full members in the church because God has designated as so. Right? Because, again, Peter had no room in his theology for something the Bible had been clearly teaching all along. So God took the, the initiative that by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome Peter's wrong theology. So uh, when Peter... 1 Corinthians 12.30 says, all do not speak in tongues. Here's my interpretation of it, but again, I talk to guys all the time who speak in tongues, who believe in the baptism in the Spirit, but think it's normative that some people will get baptized in the Spirit and not get a prayer language. I don't think so. I think that that can happen, but it's only happening because of a misunderstanding on their part. Uh, there was a very famous guy in the 1920s named R.E. Torrey who believed that about. He very much taught the baptism in the Spirit, but he very much taught that only some will get a prayer language with it. And John Wimber actually taught that, by the way, the leader of the Vineyard Movement. I've never prayed for someone who didn't get a prayer language, although I did pray with Chris and Amanda Wu, and they didn't get a prayer language that night, and they both did eventually. Uh, but in my experience, those are the only people that didn't get a prayer language that day first time we prayed with them. And so um, I, have, I uh, think it has more to do with uh, having a more biblical mindset of how to encounter God that way than it has to do. So when Paul says, do all speak in tongues, all do not speak in tongues, do they? Understand, I think the statement is descriptive of the reality in Corinth, not prescriptive of the desirable reality. Okay. So many people make his statement, that's a norm. Like, we're going to experience that not all people do this, that, and the other thing. But um, I think that was a reality in Corinth. That, and uh, also, you have to understand that he's dealing with, in both chapter 12 and chapter 14, he's dealing with the public exercise of the gifts. And I don't believe that all people are used of God to give a public message in tongues that's then interpreted. But I believe everyone can have a prayer language, and that what hinders them from not having a prayer language is just not knowing how to step into experiencing God on that, on that level. 
So that, let me preface my comments on the value of speaking in tongues, and then I'm going to try to go through them as quick as possible. One of the reasons I believe that God will give everyone a prayer language is that, you know, again, Luke 11 says, if you then being evil know how to get, ask, get, give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But part, the reason I believe that being part of getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is to receive a prayer language is because everyone did so in Acts 2, everyone did so in Acts 10, and uh, everyone's always done so in, in my experience. And if you look at the values of speaking in tongues, they don't seem to be something that God would give to one person without giving it to everyone. You need these things. Now, if you don't agree with our position on that, there's lots of things you can be a great member of this church and still not believe in our position on. So this, I'm trying to make that abundantly clear. If you would say, think that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that all do not speak in tongues is, is more of a prescriptive and that there will be people get baptized in the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues, that's fine. That's just not my understanding of it, and that's not how I practice praying for people. So make sure you understand. All right. So the first purpose of speaking in tongues, in my opinion, is edification. The Greek word oikodemeo is translated as edify. So in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 4, Paul says to pursue love, because he's told us in chapter 13 why love is, a, is an even greater thing than spiritual gifts, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So he's saying, don't misinterpret what I said in 1 Corinthians 13, which happens all the time. You get people use 1 Corinthians 13 to say, we shouldn't focus on spiritual gifts. But he says that you should focus on them. Five times in, that, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, he tells you to specifically desire earnestly spiritual gifts. But especially that you may prophesy, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands. I believe that the, when you pray in tongues, it's a spiritual prayer language that enables you to connect infinitely with the infinite Holy Spirit and speak the mysterious words of the kingdom of God that are praise and prayer and all kinds of things uh, without your mind understanding them. So he says, uh, one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his, that would be hers also, spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation, sometimes transferred comfort in older translations like the King James. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, oikodemeo is a word, a compound word in Greek from two words. Oiko, we get, the, we get oikonomics from. And uh, the namas meaning management or law and so forth. And um, oiko meaning to build. And oikonomics is how, is how is the economies built? You know, how, is, how does finances and, and products and bringing goods and services to market, how does that all work? Um, domeo, we get the word domestic from, and it means to build your spiritual house. Uh, to me, speaking in tongues is an important tool of God's grace that helps you build your spiritual life. And it builds up the, your spirit, which is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. 
even in the Old Testament, they did regular maintenance to the Holy Spirit. Remember when Josiah Maddox was king of Israel and, they, and, he, <laughs> and uh, when King Josiah was eight years old, he ordered the temple to be rebuilt, right? And, uh, and they found the book of the law and then they read the book of the law and they said, oh man, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> We've been neglecting this for quite a few uh, generations now. What was us? And they started repenting and so forth. So, uh, you, you know, temples need maintained. Buildings mean maintain. Uh, anyone who's owned a house has had times where they thought, I, was, was that a good decision to own a house? <laughs> right? <laughs> because, because houses need built up all the time. Maybe I should have rented and I could trash the place. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, not as, hopefully not as a Christian. All right. So uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and 15 says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That doesn't mean your mind is like in some passive, uh, eastern, uh, vegetative state. You know, in eastern religions, when you're meditating, you try to actually get in touch with the cosmic nothingness uh, out there, and it's actually something that invites a lot of demonic infiltration into your life. Transcendental meditation and any other fire, you know, that's why people actually ask me, can a Christian do the martial arts? I don't believe so. I believe that they are always and inevitably demonic and uh, that you cannot do them partly because the martial arts come from the spirit of the martial arts. And, and there's always involved in little sacrifices of candles and meditations and, and supposedly there's Christian versions of this. I have my doubts about that. But again, that's my personal opinion. I uh, do too much casting out demons to, uh, to believe otherwise, probably. But when you, when you pray in a tongue, your spirit is praying. You, that doesn't mean you can't be thinking about Scripture or actively wrestling with God in your mind. But your mind is unfruitful in the sense that it's not saying anything. Uh, What's the outcome? I'll both pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing with the spirit and I'll sing with my mind also. Then in verse 17, he goes on to say you're giving thanks. And the reason I include that, even though the next point is thanksgiving and praise, is thanksgiving is, the, is when it comes to talking to God, thanksgiving is kind of a starting point for what is, will build you up instead of tear you down. Often you deal with people who are kind of uh, Debbie Downers, or uh, as they would say, like people who are complainers and grumblers and mumblers and, and you know, how you doing? Oh, it's terrible. Things are bad. <laughs> and, uh, and so forth. You can't grumble and complain against the Lord and thank him at the same time. Thanksgiving is the beginning of liberation. If you have that kind of a problem where you struggle with depression, negativity, uh, condemnation, and so forth, Start with thanksgiving to God out loud is a regular practice. Because you can't grumble and complain and thank him at the same time. Lord, I thank you that things are bad. <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, that's not uh, so great. All right, so I got I to gotta kind of rush through this. I really wish I had more time to spend, but uh, this is my last message until 2019. So... Um, thanksgiving and praise is part of what it does. It, it's speaking in tongues is all about. Um, 
And uh, that's, that's huge. Uh, if you notice, uh, th- lots of cessationists will say that speaking in tongues was given to spread the gospel. That's actually an evolutionary wrong opinion. Uh, then, and it actually assumes an evolutionary view of history as if, you know, back in those ancient times, people didn't study languages from other cultures. You know, the book of Acts is about 2,000 years after uh, the Tower of Babel. And so about 2,000 years before people, or 2,500 years before, people began to study other cultures' languages. Trade and commerce couldn't have been done without that. And it was very common in the days of Jesus for every educated person would have known their national language, they would have known Greek, and they would have known Latin and been able to speak and read all three of those. And if they had converted to Judaism, then they would have also known Hebrew. Every educated person. And it's much like if you, like we are Americans, so we kind of interpret our wrongly a lot of things through those kind of ways of thinking. You know, if you live in Switzerland today, you'll be able to read German because Swiss doesn't have a written language and you read in German. And you'll probably be able to speak French and Italian because it's pretty hard to get along without speaking them. And most Swiss people I know, which aren't a lot, but I know Adrian and Sarah, know, they know, uh, you know, Swiss, German, English, French, and Italian. And they have a little joke, what do you call someone who knows only one language? An American. And I was speaking to a, I was speaking to a young man from Germany on Wright State campus one time, and I told him that joke, and he laughed, and he said, we tell the same joke except our punchline. What do you know, speak someone... What do you call someone who speaks uh, only one language? Our punchline is British, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Be, because often in English-speaking cultures, because Engl- English has become such a common language of science and commerce, often you can get by speaking just English, even with dealing with other cultures, because usually the person you're speaking with has some working knowledge of English. Now, we're way past time, but I, I'm ch- trying to get done with this, so... Uh, notice that in prayer, you know, I have a teaching called Five Times Types of Prayer. I have three of them listed under point C, uh, intercession with thanksgiving, in, uh, or petitions with thanksgiving, intercession, spiritual warfare. There specific scriptures tell us that speaking in tongues can be those three types of prayer. That's why I would really encourage you as you pray in an unknown tongue, and especially when you're privately by yourself, let the Spirit of God take, say, the emotional tone where he wants it to go. I often pray in tongues in a very commanding kind of way because I know I'm entering into spiritual warfare. Other times, I, you know, like an Italian grandmother, like, Polly, you look so skinny. You, I want you to eat ice cream every night. Sometimes you're, uh, sometimes you're like intercessing, you know, interceding for people. But let the Spirit of God set the tone of what you're praying and let that spill over into your emotions the way God wants it to. Sometimes it will be very joyous and so forth. I've seen people speaking in tongues just break out laughing. And uh, so, um, you know, you don't understand what you're saying, but, um, but one of the things that's the most clear thing to me ever since I got baptized in the Spirit in July 1974 
is that the same spirit that I'm praying in tongues in all the time is the spirit that leads me as I minister, as I read the Bible, as, as I pray, as I worship. And uh, that's why I actually go back and forth all the time when I'm worshiping between English and, and singing in the spirit. I do that constantly, and I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, if you've never like just gotten alone and spoken tongues for like an hour or two, try it. Um, it you know, uh, it's something that I uh, could not live my Christian life without speaking in tongues and edifying my spirit regularly. Uh, I've, I've never practiced that, nor would I want to practice that. Amen.